we are going to be in the Word of God, and we want to be compelled by the Word of God. We want to uh, take in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to teach us, and I am very thankful that we are able to go to the book of James, as this week uh, I have been praying that the Lord would use the book of James to continue to transform Discovery Alliance Church, that we would live as the people of God and apply uh, His Word in our lives. As you are turning to the book of James, in which we will be in chapter 1 this morning, uh, James has some passages which are uh, many times some of the most quoted scriptures that you hear Christians mentioning. Some of those uh, famous mentioned scriptures are some of these. Faith produces steadfastness. God cannot be tempted. Faith apart from works is dead. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Even the demons believe and shudder. How about this one? Be quick to hear and slow to what? Speak and slow to anger. We don't like that last part. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. These are just some passages of Scripture in the book of James which get shared and quoted and passed among brothers and sisters in Christ. As we read the book of James, understand and know that there are 60 imperatives. There are 60 commands of to do and not to do for the believer. And James chapter 1 verse 22 would be a key verse to summarize a lot of the book of James, which says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Therefore, when we read the book of James, it is very relevant for the Christian today, as all of God's word is, that um, we would read and that we would be obedient to the word of God and that the Lord would continue to work in us. I also at the same time want to encourage you to be careful in how you read the book of James and that you would always pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand as you read the word of God. Because there's two things that can happen in a negative way if you read James wrongly. If you read James apart from Jesus Christ and His grace, it can lead to you becoming a demanding legalist who's prideful in the laws of God and trying to keep them. The opposite is also if you read the book of James apart from Jesus Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ, you can live and walk this world as a hopeless disciple who has lost heart. Therefore, we read the Word of God, the book of James, in the light of Jesus Christ, in the grace that's found in His cross, so that we would walk according to His Word. I would encourage you as we study the book of James that you would read uh, as a side partner to it, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus teaches how we should live is repeated in numerous ways in the book of James. So read over the weeks and months to come, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And it is um, one of these things as we start the book of James, one of the hardest lessons for the believer is found in these first four verses. And that is that the Christian must learn how to be joyful in the midst of trials, in the midst of pain, and in the midst of suffering. The scriptural truth we see in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is that we would receive trials with joy because God is working in them for your maturity. Look with me at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Word of God. Again, Father, we thank you that you've given us your word for us to live by and to teach us of your love and your grace and your mercy found in your Son, Jesus. We ask that you would help us learn and grow and apply, and we ask that you would bless the preaching of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. When you read the letters in the New Testament, they have a greeting as is seen here in verse 1. And many times we are quick to just read the greeting and never think anything about it and move on. But this morning it is essential and important that you see verse 1. James says that he is a servant of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James is a servant. And it is a well-known fact in the early church history. This is James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. And some of you may think, well, wait, Jesus was an only child, right? Well, the Scriptures teach us differently, that Jesus had brothers and he had sisters, or half-brothers and half-sisters. Matthew chapter 13 is one of these places that teach us this. In verses 55 and 56, it says, Is not this the carpenter's son? They were speaking of Jesus. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And so some of you were maybe raised or taught that uh, Mary only had Jesus and she never had any other children. But yet we are told that there are brothers and there are sisters. There are at least nine in the house that Jesus grew up with. um, And they, uh, and one of them being James, who wrote this letter. James is also the, uh, an elder in the church uh, in Jerusalem, and therefore he is writing uh, to these 12 tribes of the dispersion, and, and he says greetings to them. The Apostle Paul, which wrote uh, a number of the letters in the New Testament, uh, met James once, and he speaks of this in Galatians chapter 1. Uh, he says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter, And remained with him fifteen days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. You think, okay, well, let's get past James. I want to know how to deal with trials. But you need to see that this is amazing when it says that James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what it is, is we must realize James grew up in the same home as Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and James and his family at one point thought Jesus was crazy. And they did not believe in him. They were not followers or disciples of Jesus, yet they grew up in the same home as him seeing Jesus in his full humanity, and also Jesus who is full in deity, uh, James did not believe so. There's a few passages of Scripture that teach us this. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, after Jesus called his disciples and he was in a home and crowds were flocking for, to him to hear him teach and to have him heal. And it says in chapter 3 of 21, verse 21, when his family heard of it, 
They went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. When you read in John chapter 7, it specifically talks of his brothers, James being one of them. Verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. And James says, He's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. That his life has been changed. That his life has been changed. And you read the Apostle Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians 15, that wonderful chapter on the resurrection of Christ. Uh, he says that Jesus appeared to his disciples, but he also appeared to James, his brother. I mean, imagine growing up in the home with Christ and seeing what Christ did and not believing in him and seeing him go to the cross and die and then Jesus. James's life has been changed and he now believes that his half-brother, Jesus, is Lord, God, and Christ, the Messiah. Look at that statement again. There's so much here in verse 1. A servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is theology. He's teaching you. He's teaching the readers of this letter that Jesus is God. Is Lord or Master, and that He is the Messiah, the Christ, therefore saying He is the only way of salvation. And it's so fitting for a world today in which people who do believe that Jesus lived can say, well, He is Lord, little l. Uh, he is one way to salvation. Don't tell me He is the only Lord and God. And yet James, who doubted, believes and states Jesus is Lord, He is God, He is Christ. He writes to, it says, the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Well, what is this? Who is this? He was an elder at the church in Jerusalem. And there's a point at which the Christians began to leave Jerusalem and scatter because there was persecution that came upon them. If you read Acts chapter 8 this week, you will read of the Apostle Paul as this persecution began to fall upon the Christians, the church in Jerusalem. There was a man named Stephen, a follower of Christ, and in chapter 7 he preaches the gospel and they cover their ears and they rush after him and they throw stones at him to kill him. And there's a man named Saul who later has his life changed by Christ, the Apostle Paul, but at that time he approved of the stoning of Stephen. And it says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. James had been ministering to the Christians in Jerusalem. They are now fleeing into these other areas for their lives as the persecution is being brought, led by the Apostle Paul. And he writes to them in the places where they are at, encouraging them to continue to walk in a right manner following Jesus Christ. And in that, he says in the very beginning of this letter, count it all joy. I mean, put yourself in that place, fleeing for your life. Persecution is falling upon Christian brothers and sisters. And he says, count it all joy. 
Look at this second point in verse 2. Finding joy in trials is what he writes of. And here we come to the first command, the first imperative out of the 60 that James writes here in the book. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, when we read the word trials there, what does the word mean? It means adversity, affliction. It means trouble, specifically sent by God to test or prove a Christian's character of their faith and their holiness. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That every single trial that the Christian goes through has a purpose, and the purpose is for testing and strengthening one's faith. If you read in the Old Testament the story of the book of Job, the account of his life in which Satan was given permission by God to test and afflict Job, and his children were killed, his riches and wealth was taken away, and he was afflicted with sores across his body. He continued to worship God. There was a test upon him, and his faith, that is what the test was when you read Job chapter 1 and 2. And even through that, that Job questions God why he did what he did or allowed and in a sense blames God and then it's at the end of Job in which God shows Job that he is God and Job is completely humbled and he says you are God forgive me for my wrong statements and calling out to you I don't know about you but when a trial does come to the believer <clears throat> I would say the majority of the time we are completely surprised, we are completely taken off guard, and we, can, we, we go, where is this coming from? And it is easy to be so focused on the trouble that you're in that we forget the words of Christ. In John chapter 16, Jesus says this, I have said these thing to, things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And some of you say, that's easier said than done, Jesus. Some of you might have been taught wrongly when you came to faith in Jesus Christ that if you just believed in Him, everything would get better. You ever heard that before preached in this world? It's a lie. Jesus never promises in this life that things will get better in the sense that trial and tribulation will come. The part that gets better is being sealed by the Holy Spirit for all eternity and the inheritance that you have set before you, which is Jesus Christ. But in this world, Jesus never promised ever that you would have a great, happy, joyful, trouble-free life. So he says, don't, James says, don't be surprised. The Apostle Paul says, don't be surprised. Peter says, do not be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you. Look back at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He says various, this can mean many colors or many different types of afflictions and troubles that your trials on this side of the room may be different than the trials on this side of the room, that they're not identical, but they are various and many. And he says when you meet these trials or you encounter these trials, it means falling into the trial 
It's the same word used when Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan in which there was a man traveling along a road and it says he fell into the hands of the thieves that tried to rob him and kill him. That is the picture and the wording that James writes when you face a trial. It's falling into the trial and therefore no wonder why we are at times so easily surprised. Therefore, if we're not to be surprised or taken off guard, there are things that we can do and pray for and ask that we would be not taken off guard. I would say, though, that some of the most common trials that take us off guard have to do with health, have to do with sickness, have to do with those verdicts that the doctor tells us that we are dealing with. I would say probably the second most common trials for many has to do with money and being surprised of losing everything and dealing with the fact of poverty and the test is to trust God who provides all. How about the trial for the Christian who is being persecuted in their school, in their workplace, in their home, in their neighborhood, in this world because they have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Again, the trials are various, and they are troubling to us, but there is a purpose in them. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, if you are facing this trial of being persecuted by the world, He says, blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I point these things out to remind you to look at James. He's not writing to people who are not Christians. He's not writing to the world. He's writing to you if you say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If you are one who is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, James writes to you and how you deal with trials and how you are to count it all joy. Because if you are not a Christian, there is no way you will ever find any joy in any trial in life. Only the Christian can count it all joy. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy. When it says count it, it means to consider. It means to evaluate that the trial you go, that you stop and you think and you pray and you meditate on the Word of God and even though you may be completely surprised, you're to evaluate what is going on. What is the Lord bringing or allowing or sending your way? And therefore, the joy comes in the fact when we trust God and the outcome of the trial that follows. You, you and I, if you're a follower of Christ, are to consider your trials as a matter of joy. And yet probably many of you would say, no way. I hear what you're saying, but I don't see the joy in any of these problems that I have now or will have or have had. And most likely, if you're not finding joy in it, is that you're not reading or believing or understanding or never been told the truth that you can have joy in the midst of the trials. 
James is not saying, enjoy the trial because there's joy at the end. No. A cancer patient does not ask the doctor, why is the radiation and chemotherapy so bad with the doctor saying, if you want to get better, you got to go through the chemotherapy. you got to go through the, the, the radiation with the hope of being cancer-free. And therefore, the cancer patient counting the joy of being cancer-free one day is the reason for going through that trial. Therefore, Christian, brother, sister in Christ, your suffering in this world is not worthless. It's not just pointless. It is not fruitless. The trials that you go through has a purpose by God to mature you and build you up in Him, specifically, as He says, for patience. How many of you would say, I need to grow in patience? As we murmur through, yes, and amen. Some of you may be the most patient people in the room, but you need to grow in your steadfastness and your patience specifically in the Lord God Almighty because He's completely sovereign and therefore we must trust in Him and God sends trials so that you would grow in maturity and trust Him more. And so know this, in every trial you face, God has a good purpose in it. There is a reason why you face the trial, and it's because God sins or allows it because He's doing a work in your life. If you were here the last month, we spent time in the book of Ruth. And you, if, you would, if you were here, you would remember that Naomi went through a trial. She lost a husband, lost some sons. And she was quick to say, I am bitter and blaming God. And then through all of the count of the book of Ruth, we see that God cared for her the whole time. And you see a different Naomi at the end when she sees the grace of God upon her life. And that is what happens in the believer as the trial comes into your life, that as God brings you through the trial, you then grow in maturity, and that joy you have in Christ, you're like, oh, I see it now, Lord. That's why you allowed that. That's why you sent that because look at what has changed in my life now. So don't lose sight of the fact that all of the trials that you would ever face have a purpose and it's under the hand of our sovereign God. I was reading in Psalm chapter 56 this week. When you read in the Psalms many times, David uh, ask questions of God. Why is, the, why is this happening? Why are those people doing that? Lord, there's these enemies coming after me. And in Psalm 56, as he is trusting in God, this statement, he says, what can flesh do to me? If you're a follower of Christ, if you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, know that no matter what trial, if it comes and it's so bad, the worst that can happen is that you die and you instantly go to be with Christ. That's the worst that can happen. So for the Christian, you do not fear death. Because we know from the book of Hebrews that the Christian, when the, when the Christian dies, the Christian soul goes immediately to Christ. There's that promise. 
And therefore, those trials as deep and hard that you may be going through that seem so overwhelmingly the worst that can happen to you, Christian, is you die and go instantly be with Christ for all eternity. The reality, though, is our, our human self still struggles. Woe is me! God, why are you punishing me? And so we even think of in which God disciplines his children, Hebrews. God, why are you doing this to me? Well, we know why God allows and why he sends trials. It's so he matures you spiritually. And so it's so hard at times for us to get out of this, woe is me, and move to, Lord, work in me. Help me see what you're doing. I don't feel like I have any joy right now, but to cling to the promise and the hope and the, that there is joy because he is moving you to the place where he wants you. James teaches us here in verses 1 through 4 that God is strengthening us in our faith and that our focus and our joy, count it all joy, church, is looking to our inheritance. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us this about Jesus Christ. As he went to the cross, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This does not mean when Hebrews writes it that Jesus was like, yes, I'm going to the cross. I'm so joyful in that. No, remember the garden? He falls in his face. The agonizing drops of blood and the sweat. Father, if there's any other way, take this from me. No, there's no joy in that sense of him doing that. But what Hebrews tells us is that Christ had joy in the outcome, just like you're to have joy in the outcome of your trials because Jesus Christ knew that if he went to the cross and that he shed his blood for God's people, that God's people would be set free from their sins, that the chains of slavery to sin would be broken, and that as he would go to the cross and take the wrath of God the Father meant for his people, that the joy was in the outcome, that his people would be saved for all eternity. So the focus is Jesus looked towards the future. Christian, church, you're to look towards the future. The inheritance you have in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, that is your focus in the midst of your trouble. And Jesus Christ died and he rose again, conquering Satan, conquering sin, and conquering death. There is no more death for the believer in Christ. Therefore, Christian, remind yourself daily by being in the Word of God the wonderful spiritual blessings that you have. Read passages like Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, which speaks of the future. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Have you ever shed any tears in your life because of trouble that's come? It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christian, your hope is Jesus. 
Your inheritance is heaven with him forever. Glorified body. No more pain, no more tears, no more death. That is what you look to. And this morning we can say amen and we can be all riled up and we can go out with joy. And then tomorrow morning when you get in your class, you get in your your workspace, you go knock on that neighbor's door and that trial and everything hits you in the face. You're like, woe is me. No, look to Christ. Look to heaven. Look to the joy of the outcome of the trial. And so if you look with me at verse 3, we see this testing of your faith. This, James says, here is how this all works in the midst of these trials. He says in verse 3, he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So the trial is a test. The testing, it means to prove or to be proving you the test of faith. The result is that uh, there is the result of steadfastness. It's really, in one sense, a question. The test is, um, really, what is your faith? How is your faith? Is your faith genuine in Christ Jesus Because we know many people, and I pray that none of you are them who go to church for years and years and years and then stop because a trial hits their life. Just like the parable of the sower or the soil in which the the grain just pops up. There's this joyfulness about Jesus, but the person is not saved and the sun comes out and withers them because they're not in the word. The, the, the one that, goes, that grows up and is choked out by the things of the world. Are you one of those in those soils there? Is your faith real or are you just showing up here being religious? Because if you're religious then you would love James and you would love passages in the Old Testament because you'd be like, oh, i got to do that, 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 and that. I'm going to obey this and obey this. And it's like you totally miss the fact of the grace of Jesus Christ. You cannot do anything to save yourself. You cannot be obedient enough to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. God saves his people by his grace and mercy through the blood that he shed, not because of anything we ever deserved, because he just chooses to do that and to love his people. Therefore, if you're religious, I pray that God saves you today and makes you a Christian and not just a person who is religious. If you see there in verse 3, James insists that the Christian knows. We know, for you know that the test of your faith produces steadfastness. Again, if the believer does know that as a fact from Scripture, it's interesting that he points it out. Therefore, are you in the Word to be reminded daily of truths like this so that you would continue to grow in your faith and your steadfastness in the Lord. It says steadfastness there. It means endurance. It means perseverance, specifically in how you follow Jesus Christ and how the Christian walks day by day in the grace of Jesus Christ. The result is steadfastness, and that is what we should pray for, that God would make us steadfast in our faith in Him Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
The Apostle Paul wrote a number of the letters in the New Testament, or the books that we have in the New Testament. When you read of his life, specifically laid out in the book of Acts, you think Paul is the super apostle. He's the one who always uh, is following the Lord and, and all these things are going on. But I am so thankful that Paul, when he writes, he writes as a believer who is in this world dealing with the same trials and struggles that we deal with today. And so he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you read that verse 10 there? For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I pray that all of us who are believers can say that. I pray that it is something that we can, as believers, truly believe. And at the same time, I know that we're all at different stages in our growth in Jesus Christ, and He is sanctifying us daily every moment of the day, and therefore for some of us in this room, we may be in the woe is me category. Others of us may be growing in our patience and looking forward to our heavenly place inheritance with the Lord Jesus. Some of us may be in between and having ups and downs, just like when you read the book of Psalms. In one moment, David is like at this pit, and the next moment he's praising the Lord. And then the next moment he's like, oh Lord, why is this happening? And the next moment he's singing praises to God. That I'm thankful for because we are humans just like David. We are humans just like the Apostle Paul. And we, by the grace of God, can walk according to the Word of God in how God would do that work. And therefore, we must be reminded that the testing of our faith has a goal. Look with me at verse 4. Back in James, <clears throat> the fourth point is maturity is our goal. Maturity is the goal. This is the second command in the book of James. It's the second imperative. It says to do this. This is a command. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And again, this is one of those passages in James that you must read it in the light of Jesus Christ and the cross. Because when you read, may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, some of you may get in the false idea that somehow in your Christian life, you're going to be perfected because you're being obedient to God before He returns. There's no scripture that says that. And therefore, at the same time, we must guard from saying, I'll just kick back. I'm sealed in Christ. 
Yeah, Jesus, I'm, whenever you come, I'm just going to do whatever. No. We are to be obedient. As the Lord has laid out in His Word, that He says, if you love me, you will obey me. But at the same time, our obedience comes from nothing inside of us that we can do. It can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to be obedient to His Word. And do we continue to fail and sin? Yes. Will you be perfect on this side of heaven? No, never. But God is continuing to sanctify you and make you more perfect and more like Christ and more steadfast in your faith. Therefore, the reason for these trials. And let steadfastness, verse 4, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said something similar in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are, of, are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know that when He appear, appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Again, church, Please get it in your mind that as a Christian walking this world today, the goal is maturity. The goal is to be perfect in Christ. But you will not reach that until you are with Him face to face. When you die, as Hebrews says, your soul immediately goes to Christ and your soul is perfected in holiness. But where does your body go? In the ground, in the grave. And for the believer, there is a promise. When Christ returns to judge the world, He will raise the bodies and Christians will be given new, glorified, perfect bodies. A perfect soul and a perfect body united in Christ for all eternity. That is the joy and the hope that we have set before us as we go through the trials today. But you will never be perfect and without sinning in this life until you're glorified and you're made holy by the work of God after your death. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes of this. He states this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Again, when you read the Apostle Paul, you're like, man, this guy was like the perfect Christian. And yet he states to the believers in Philippi, he's like, I'm not there yet. I'm not matured yet. I'm still growing. And I'm like, thank you, Lord, for Philippians chapter 3. It says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my goal because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think, otherwise God will reveal that to you also. Man, that should be our prayer this morning. Would you mature us that we would think like this? That the goal and the prize... This, this maturity in Christ being conformed to the likeness of Christ, that that is what we strain for, not by any energy in us or power in us, but the Holy Spirit in us giving the power to do so. 
that is what we strive for, and that's what we should press on towards. And I'm thankful again for Philippians chapter 3. So let's bring this to a close here and look at what James summarizes here for us. You will face trials as a follower of Christ, and you may or may not see the end result of that trial. Your goal as a believer in Christ is spiritual maturity, that your faith in Christ would grow, and that goal of that is that through that suffering is maturity in Christ, and that by God's grace that we can grow in our faith in Christ, and the result of Him doing that work to mature us, and therefore, as He says, count it all joy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I know you have trouble. I know you have trials. Some of you don't even want to tell anyone that you have that trouble. But as a believer in Christ, count it all joy that the purpose of it is that you would be mature in Christ and be reminded that the trial is short. It's small in light of all of eternity. You may think, I've been in this trial for 10 years of my life. Look at eternity. It is minuscule. It is nothing in the sense of God doing that work to mature you in Him. As we started off, the scriptural truth from this text is this. Receive trials with joy because God is working in them for your maturity. And I've been preaching to you, Christians, And I've been preaching to you who are not Christians. And if you're not a Christian, you need to understand this. If you're not a Christian, you will never find any joy joy in any trial or struggle or problem in your life. There is no joy for you, non-Christian. For you, rejecting Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's no joy. There's no hope. It's different for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. The result of your rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is eternal wrath of God, is eternal sorrow, is eternal trouble in hell forever. You've heard the gospel preached to you. Jesus Christ has died on the cross and shed his blood for his people, and he has risen from death to life. And if you believe in him, as Jesus, Jesus is Lord, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And therefore, I pray that today is a day of salvation for you. And the last word for all of you who are Christians, and to myself, would you look at one last passage and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you want to join us tonight at 5 o'clock, we are uh, beginning a study through the book of 1 Peter. That will be tonight at 5. Wonderful letter, again, for the believers and for our growth and faith in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Christian, there is no trial, trouble, sorrow that is outside of God's plan, His providence, His will for you to go through. And there's a purpose that He has for you, which is to cause you to grow in your faith and lead you towards maturity spiritually. This week, pray as the apostles, the disciples did in Luke chapter 17. They said, Lord, increase our faith. And some of you are like, I don't want to pray that. Because if I say, Lord, increase my faith, he's going to send a trial. Doesn't necessarily mean that. Some of you are like, I don't know about that. I'm going to put that prayer to the side. But we should pray. Father, would you increase my faith? Because if we try to do something on our own, we fall every time. We stumble every time. And it's not going to get us any growth spiritually in our life. Would you pray for the church here at Discovery? In the weeks to come as we go through the book of James, that God would cause you and I to grow in our faith in the midst of whatever trouble that he would receive all the glory and that we would see the goodness in it because he loves us greatly. Psalm 30 says this, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would love us so much to send your Son to die in our place for our sins, and that you would not only um, allow him to... To, to command him that he would be obedient to die for us, but that you would raise him from death to life so that we would be saved, we would be set free from our sins, we'd be forgiven, and that we would uh, be given new life and death would not have its hold on us. Father, I pray that this church and myself would grow in our maturity in you. Our faith would grow in you. And Father, I pray for any who are here who are not saved, and today they've heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that they would believe in their heart, that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. We praise you and give you thanks. Receive the songs, the praises that we sing now to you, Jesus. Amen.